0: Welcome to The Stripe, the first and only podcast dedicated to the face-off position. I'm your host, Greg Gorenlian. I'm excited to bring you knowledge and insight about the PLL face-offs and their superstars that perform at the face-off stripe. The championship series is in the books. The Whip Snakes have been crowned champs. But before we close the book on this summer's action, we needed to review, digest, and analyze what we just witnessed from the PLL's face-off athletes. Today's episodes will focus on just that. Who overperformed, who underperformed, and why? What does it all mean for the future, and what can we expect from the offseason? We will get to all of this and more as we dish out our statistical series of awards from today. So thanks for meeting me today at The Stripe. Okay, so we just witnessed the PLL Championship Series, the first of its kind. We had a lot of teams that played mostly about six games, and the Whip Snakes came out on top. There was a group play. 14 four games per team they got to a chance to rank themselves and then when the elimination bracket began uh it was it was pretty obvious from the beginning of this whole thing to the end that the whip snakes were almost unbeatable at certain points and the redwoods took them to overtime that was about as close as it got in fact the redwoods lost to them by four and took them to overtime and that was by far the closest games that we saw we did see in the third quarter that the chaos had you know looked like they had him on the ropes, and within about two minutes, the Snakes scored four goals. And we'll get into all of that. Obviously, strong goaltending play, but Joe Nardella kind of stole the show throughout the series. He was, he was definitely the face-off MVP. When the awards came out, everyone was like, this is very nice that you're putting another couple of people up there for the award. But it was pretty obvious that it was Joe Nardella's to lose. So we're going to go team by team. We're going to go player by player, and we're going to take a look at exactly what happened during this championship series there were a lot of different variables. I think the first one that jumped out at people was the incredibly fast cadences if that's what you want to call it from the officials throughout the entire series. This is going to be this is going to have to be something that gets looked at by the PLL as a league the officiating in my opinion being completely objective was was terrible uh, at the stripe. I think guys were lined up with their hands on the plastic. There were guys lined up across the line, there were guys rolling into every single play. I know Joe Ardella was called for five earlies in the championship game, and we were all looking at the TV going, what was different between those 5 faceoffs compared to the rest of them? Anytime someone was called early, both players turned around and looked at the refs. They weren't sure who was called early. Uh, they were using this cadence that was whacked out, something I've never seen before. The officials were barely just kind of flicking their hand in there and touching and going and blowing the whistle at the same time. So guys were just guessing. No one was reacting to a whistle. Guys who historically have super fast hand speed on the whistle like Tommy Kelly or Trevor Baptiste, um, you know, were seemed like they were late to the party on the whistles a lot. And that's obviously something that needs to be looked at. Now, why is this such a big issue? Well, when you look at the reasons for the PLL rules, when you go back to episode zero, we broke down exactly why the PLL came up with these rules, why they were brought upon, how many people were in on coming up with the decisions for them. They were supposed to be the blueprint for the entire sport. And last year in the first season of the PLL, a full season, it was proven that the rules worked really, really well. Teams that had more wing ground balls had more faceoff wins overall. Guys were not cheating. They couldn't. Guys were waiting for the whistle. There was a great set cadence, back out, and a, and a whistle blow. And when you looked at the end of the season – Parity was very apparent. It was about 8% that every single starter in the league was within an 8% reach. And that is what you're looking for in the NCAA when they complain about parity. They're complaining about guys going 80%. Um, when they're complaining about uh, one faceoff guy dominating by just clamping and turning. And those rules really helped. And they they worked. And they were proven to work. However, they were completely do- kind of ruined uh, during this this championship series. The officials... When you just throw your hand in there and blow the whistle at the same time, that means that the face-off guys, by rule, really don't have a set call. And when you don't have a set call, that means guys are moving the entire time leading up to the whistle and rolling into it. And it creates a nightmare scenario because even as the official putting your hand in there, you can't really tell if a guy's going early or not. And by my estimation, being somebody who analyzed every face-off throughout the entire series at least once or twice – On average, the guys, I would say about 72% of the faceoffs done throughout the entire series, one guy went early um, at least. So that's something that's obviously a mess, and that's going to have to get uh, focused on. And it will during the offseason. That'll get rectified because there's no real excuse for it. Guys were clamping, and they were taking six, seven steps before exiting. And it just looked like at certain times, to be honest, that the officials seem almost disinterested. And that's something that's got to get fixed. Now, now that we've gotten that soapbox moment out of the way, let's look at some of these statistics because that really does tell part of the story. And it's important. We can't sit back and pretend like that's not part of this. So when we look at the faceoff statistics, we're going to go team by team and really look at who led in specific categories and and why they did as well or as poorly as they did. So let's start at the bottom. Okay, The chaos. The chaos as a team were last in the league in faceoff percentage. Throughout this entire series, uh, when you look at their overall faceoff percentage, they were at thirty-five point three. Okay, and, and that's so they're winning about third one third of their faceoffs throughout the entire tournament. And there are things that I believe are internal that were issues, and there are certainly external factors as well. I believe Tommy Kelly is not a thirty-five percent faceoff man. Tommy Kelly is a bona fide. Starting caliber faceoff man in the PLL, and I hope that he gets a fair shake coming next year. I would hate to see the things that happened in one series kind of hurt guys career wise. But let's look at this. So, what is Tommy Kelly good at? Tommy Kelly is, we've talked about it in the in the past in the preseason, fastest hands in the league. You could argue, and and a really high clamp percentage guy. His clamp percentage was around fifty five percent in this tournament, and. When you look at that disparity usually between him winning a face-off, winning a clamp, and then winning a faceoff, and for those of you at home that don't, don't understand, a clamp is basically you are the first to the ball so that you can control where it goes. So he won a little bit over 50% of his clamps. Last season, throughout the course of an entire season, he was in the 70 percentile. So he was winning 70% of his clamps at least, but his faceoff percentage was down near 52%. So we said, okay, there's about a 20% disparity. We brought Tommy in. We talked about what he had done in the offseason. He worked his tail off. He lost 20-some pounds. He was faster, and it was obvious on film that he was definitely lighter and faster when he was chasing out on ground balls. And he said he had worked on his footwork. The problem that we saw when we look at internally is he still has a 20% gap. He had 55% clamp percentage, but he was 35% on face-offs. And when you look at that, combined with having no backup plan and that was something we talked about with certain teams who were going out with one guy and coach towers was super confident and he had every right to be in tk's ability to stay on the field and win face-offs but there was no backup plan jack relic came in a couple times and showed that he had the ability to rake cleanly and affect certain people he did well against uh, connor farrell when he did that however he was injured at certain points and never really got a chance to go out there and showcase that again but my concern was two things. I think Tommy Kelly was totally ruined by the officiating. I think the officiating really hurt guys who are used to waiting on the whistle. I mean, when you look at violations, TK had two violations the entire tournament. So you can tell right there, that's not a guy who rolls into the whistle. That's not a guy who guesses or tries to you know, anticipate the whistle. He's solid with his technique, and he just waits for it and then goes. So that's confidence in your ability to get to the ball. He wasn't able to just showcase that because the officiating was just throwing a hand down on the plastic, blowing the whistle, and guys were just jumping all over the place. So I feel like he was – I'm telling you right now, that's like a 20% difference in faceoff percentage. And you can say, wow, Greg, that's really good. No. Let's think about it. Last year against the exact same people, Tommy Kelly was around 52 53%. In this tournament, he's 35. He was faster. He was lighter what are, What are you telling me the difference? Is? So when you watch the face off film, if you go back and watch last year's game, watch it, compare those cadences that the officials used last year that looked very similar to a college cadence compared to the ones that he had to deal with this year. And you'll see what I'm talking about. So I think he was harmed greatly by that. And like I said, I, I know Coach Andy Towers, one of the greatest collegiate faceoff men of all time, will understand that when he watches that film and and give him a fair a fair, reasonable review. Uh, however, here's the stuff that has to get worked on. It was very evident. You know, when we talk about this professional level lacrosse players who are face off guys, the difference between me and a professional face off man and a college or high school face off man in college and high school. Okay. You are really relying on yourself. So in high school, if you have fast hands and good technique, you're going to dominate everybody in college. It becomes more about game planning and working and refining your technique and exits and having those available to you. But in in the pro game, it's all about studying your opponent's weakness and exploiting it. And that's what I did my entire professional career. That's why I felt like I was a much better professional faceoff man than a college faceoff man. I was able to be malleable and I was able to adjust my game based on my opponent's strengths and weaknesses. And I used my wings to help me in those endeavors. And the PLL rules were designed with a smaller field, closer wings for you to use chess more than ever. So lacrosse IQ is a huge factor in faceoff wins at the professional level. We watched the Chaos play six games and it felt like they were doing the same thing on faceoffs every game. There was no route running by the wings, there was no adjustment to space. It looked like TK was frustrated obviously from the officiating and from uh, you know a lack of success early on, but there was no clamp, popped the ball out to space. When, when I watched TK earlier on in his professional career, I was in awe of his ability to find his wings. And he hasn't shown that. I don't know if it's because he's not allowed to do what he wants to do on the wings. I don't know if it's because his wings won't listen, or I don't know if it's just, he doesn't feel comfortable in such a small field of putting the ball out to where he needs, but it was obvious that the blueprint was there and it was, it was exposed because every single game, we saw the same exact game plan against the chaos lock the wings. If you lose the clamp, stand up and check and then steal the ground balls. And that was all guys are going to do against the chaos. And when they went to a double pole, it almost made it a little bit easier at certain times because now it's easy to lock off a a long pole. There's no shorty outlet. I would have loved to see Glacini um, or uh, Sergio go out there on the wing and then on the whistle, go to a pre-designated route and just have the ball thrown out to space. And it, this would have saved TK a lot of bruising throughout the, the tournament. So that's something that's going to have to get worked on. I don't think weight was an issue for TK. I'm glad he felt better, and he definitely looked faster on ground balls. I think it's more of a dialogue between wings, and I think it's way more about getting the ball out to space and using technique and footwork. The ability to stand up is something that that they might want to look at as well. If they want to bring a second guy on for next season – have a guy who can go standing neutral grip where you hold the stick the opposite way with your right hand. You bend over and you use the bottom sidewall to rake and pull the ball out to space because we're going to talk about it in a little bit. The Water Dogs greatly benefited from having two guys, one guy in Jake Withers who was malleable and, and stood up a lot of the time. And then you had Drew Simino who came back to form because of that and was able to play off it. Of I think TK would would benefit a lot from having a teammate who does exactly the opposite of what he does to keep teams off balance, but the chaos wing play ground balls, 16, 16 throughout the entire tournament. The only team that didn't have 20 or more wing ground balls. So we're talking 2.3 wing ground balls a game, and that is not going to cut it. And and you can blame whoever you want on it, but at the end of the day, all that matters is that it gets rectified because if the chaos are winning faceoffs, I mean, they were winning games. They made it to the championship game and they had the whip snakes on the ropes. But faceoffs became a massive factor in the second half of that game, and they ended up getting pumped in the end of the championship uh, when they were up big early. And, you know, you have a team that won by 10 goals almost in the semifinal, and they were getting beat on face-offs. So, you know, this is a team that has all the pieces they need if they can just get the ball 50% of the time. All right, so let's move up the ladder here. The Redwoods, very different story. Uh, when you look at the Redwoods, they were at 36.2% overall. We talked about at the beginning and we were making some, uh, you know, when we were talking about the production team was talking about, Hey, you know, who do you think is going to have higher face-off percentages and stuff? My guess was the Redwoods were not going to have a high overall face-off percentage. Why? Because they had two guys who were very, very different, two guys with very different approaches who were both rookies in the league. And there wasn't going to be a Brian Carolunis on the wings. Matt Landis wasn't available to be pulled up on the wings. Larkin Kemp wasn't going to be there. So you lost some guys in the past that understood how things are done. And you had a whole bunch of veterans that were looking for, you know, where do you want us on the wings? And and I had remarked in my live feed over Twitter during these games, it looked like the Redwoods were implementing very well executed wing play in the wrong games. So in games where it looked like they should be crashing on the faceoff man, like against Trevor Baptiste. You want to crash, you want to designate one guy to come in and double team him. And they were locking off the wings instead. So Trevor Baptiste had a field day on his own GBs. When you look at a game against Tommy Kelly, that was actually the only game TK was over 55% in the entire tournament. And he was about 70% in that game against the Redwoods. And they weren't locking off the wings. They were jogging in and the, the chaos wing players, that was the only game that the chaos had more wing ground balls in their opposition. And they were just beating their guy in by a step every time, and because of that, the Redwoods struggled on faceoffs again. Um, so, you know, when you watch their game against Connor Farrell, Connor Farrell, you would use a you know a blitz technique. You would hide your coverage because Connor likes to pop the ball out to his wings if he needs to, and then on the whistle, one guy would designate, and you would alternate. You'd sprint in against the Whip Snakes. You would have one guy. Sprint in five yards behind you because you can't freeze against the Whip Snakes because of counter ability from Nardella. And you would throw the ball through your legs and scoop through that. And instead, they had guys <clears throat> just locking off the wings and it led to a field day for the Whip Snakes. So it looked like there was just a lot of miscommunication. And, and look, this happens when you have rookies and you also have two very different styles and tendencies of faceoff guys. You're going to run into these situations. We talked about that. It's really tough, especially if you're going down by two or three goals, to have to focus as a wing player on, okay, we just gave up a goal. I got to talk to the defense. Now I also have to figure out is Greg out there or is Peyton out there? Where do they want me? What side do they want me on? So you could tell there was a lot of confusion there. And I've said this before we have to give the guys who are new in this league a real long rope because, in, you know, if you put yourself in Peyton Smith's shoes, Usually you come in as a rookie, you play a full game, whether it goes right or wrong. You follow the film, you break it down, you talk about it for a week. You come into practice the following weekend, you break it down with your coach, and then you get your game plan ready for the next guy. In this, it was, oh man, that was a tough game. All right, suit up tomorrow in 24 hours We're going again. That is really tough to ask for new guys. So we have to give Greg and, and Peyton a lot of credit for being able to man that. And we have to give Coach Nat a lot of credit and his staff for being patient with it as well. And they, they almost pulled it off. They still almost made it to the championship game. So another team right there that has all the pieces they need, if they can just get into that 50%, they're, they're going to be a juggernaut next season. Now, when we look at the face-off percentage, 36.2, the clamp percentage was 54%. So as a team, their clamp percentage was actually fourth in the league. So they were getting the clamps. Now, when we look at Peyton Smith, when Peyton Smith wins a clamp, usually Peyton Smith wins a faceoff. However, when we look at what happened this year, what, the teams that they ran into, okay, they ran into the Whip Snakes. Now, what do we know about when you face off against Joe Nardella? You can't clamp and freeze because if you freeze, he's then going to counter you. He's going to get you with that butt end counter. He's going to lift you, and the Whip Snakes are going to collapse on a three on two ground ball. All right. So we look at Peyton Smith. He was at 48.2% clamps, 37% face off, and that was hurt greatly by their game against the Whip Snakes. And that's just growing pains. Everyone has those days, and that's the way it goes. When you look at Greg Paskuljan, Greg Paskuljan was second in the entire league in clamp percentage. I don't know if you knew that or not. He was 63% in the league throughout the series. And he actually won seven out of eight at one point against Nardella in that semifinal. Now, when you watch the film, Greg Paskuljan does the same thing on every single rep. He gets you with the click and drag. He gets that bottom side one under the ball. He rips it out. And then he tries to stand up and scoop. And the problem is the ball pops out and he overran ground balls the entire time. So when we look at this, 34 clamps were one. Okay. He had seven ground balls. And I know Greg's going to look at the film and kick himself. And you know, we're all watching it going, wow, he missed first-time ground balls about four to five a game. And that's something you've got to come up with. That's what makes Trevor Baptiste, Joe Nardella. Jake Withers, these guys are special because they don't miss those first-time ground balls. They get them the second they hit the turf, and they're out. So that is a huge adjustment. And we talked about this. This is tough because we all took three or four weeks to get adjusted to the field size last season. Guys were not used to playing on a field that short. And it was obvious that Greg Kuskuljan was struggling with that. He popped the ball out. There'd be a guy on him right away because he tries to pop the ball out off of his knee. And it's really hard to be successful and do that in the PLL. But then when he would pop it out far enough, it would almost be too close to the arc and it would get taken away. So that's something that he's going to have to work on. If he wants to maintain his ability in this league, he also benefited greatly from the officiating when it came to clamp percentage. If you watch Greg line up, he wasn't really ever set. And then he would kind of just punch his hand in there and rip the ball out, especially against uh, the whip snakes. He did a great job of that. And look, I was saying the same thing about Joe, Joe, adapted the best to the officials that's that's it hands down okay he he used his talent he used everything he has and then on top of that he was the guy that was fine doing what he had to do with the referee cadence and that showed and he actually had the most violations in the entire league throughout the process but when you look at that how would I have done it as a veteran if I was playing in this Uh, this series, I would have done the exact same thing. I would have lined up and I would have said, when I see that hand come in from the official, I'm going. And you can call me for an early once or twice a game, but the rest of the time I'm going to be smoking guys on the whistle. And that's what I would have done. So you can't fault him for that at all. Uh, But that's something that we got to look at for Greg, the And the Redwoods is, you know, having two guys that are that different going to help you down the line, like it did with the whip snakes. I mean, with, um, excuse me, with the water dogs or are you going to say, OK, maybe we need guys who are a little bit similar or maybe we need one guy moving forward? That's going to have to get figured out. But when you look at the wing ground balls uh, for this team as as an, as an entire wing unit, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. It's just sometimes you just couldn't tell what they were doing. So when you look at the wing ground balls, they were at the 20. They were 20. So they were second to last in the league on wing ground balls. Uh, and there were games where they looked really strong, and they definitely got better as they went on. Pat Harbison really took over in the in the elimination bracket. Uh, John Sexton was pretty sturdy throughout. But they're going to need a lot more from their unit, and, there's, and cohesiveness is king when you look at faceoffs uh, in this league. So we move forward. We look at the Archers. The Archers started off real hot. But w- the problem with the Archers, when they were hot, they were super hot, like 80% to 100%. Uh, face-off wins in a quarter. But when they were not going, they were they were really, really cold. So as a team, they were 48%. At one point, they were second in the entire tournament in face-off percentage, and it really dipped towards the end there. Now, granted, you're going against uh, Nardella when he was really hot. You're going against Trevor Baptiste. So these types of things are going to happen. But Clamp percentage was at 41%. We talked about the athleticism. That really wasn't something that we saw much of. We didn't see a face-off win and then take it around to X uh, after the first or second game. I think they bailed on that idea because they were like, look, our offense is crazy good. We don't need to do that. And it was interesting in the first couple games, like, for instance, when they played early, they were winning a face-off and they would take Trevor Baptiste around to X and dodge. And Trevor's played indoor. Trevor's a a very good indoor player. He has no problem playing defense. That wasn't what I was interested in. I was interested to see if the Archers would get the ball down to the wings on attack then through x to a sprint to the crease hook around get a get a ride back and then take the screen in the crease or up top and then sprint and then make Trevor Baptiste or whoever you're playing against Joe Nardella, that one face off guy on their team make him run 80 yards of sprinting between every face off that's what i was looking for but instead they kind of held the ball tried to dodge it didn't work out well and then they kind of bailed on the whole idea throughout the rest of the series and that kind of was shocking. And what the most shocking thing for the entire series for me, the most shocking thing that I saw by any team was the most important face-off of the entire series. And they were at 50% or over the entire game against the Chaos. And in the most important face-off of the entire series, they decide to bail and put a short stick D mid out, uh, a, a regular midfielder out there to just basically give up the face-off instead of putting one of your two guys out there who were over 50% the whole game, that blew my mind and, and pretty much ended the entire run. I could not believe what I was watching. Um, I'm not sure why that decision was made, but that blew my mind. Um, you know, you, you got two guys who were super athletic and at certain times showed what they can do. One of them the disappointing things that I saw was In that semifinal, the footwork on exits, Tommy Kelly and his wings got hot, and they were over 50% in the second half against the Archers in that game. And you saw, you know, if you watch a Joe Nardella or a Jake Withers and their counter ability, they crowd you, they get under your stick, they go belly to helmet, meaning that their stomach's facing your helmet, and they don't allow you any room. But the Archers, when they would lose a clamp, were drop stepping, and they would just stand up and they would freeze, and they would allow TK to rotate and pop the ball out, and that is just not what your athleticism is meant to do. You're, you're meant to hawk that person, get on top of them, get in front of them, lift. Uh, and they really were drop-stepping, which was giving TK plenty of space. So when you watch the Archers towards the end, I think the, the, the ability to counter really wasn't there. Um, and I think Bones Kelly was more on the whistle than he's ever been. He's really at home with those super-fast cadences. He was doing a good job with that. And I think that they – were, they were moving at certain points and their wing ground balls. They were at 23 wing ground balls. Their wing ground balls went up uh, throughout the series. They actually averaged 3.8, which was low at the beginning. It was really low and it came up at towards the end. And I was telling people this isn't because the wings aren't good. It's because for the most part, Bones was winning the ball to himself. He had a great backdoor exit to his right shoulder that he was using on the whistle early on in the series, and he was getting a lot of his own ground balls. And that's really uh, what was impressive about him. However, that's going to hurt your wing ground balls, of course. Now, the one thing I would like to see more of, if you want to beat a whip snakes team or a Water Dogs team, as the Archers, what you need is you need an amoeba-type crowding of the ball. And what I mean by that is, like, I use this analogy when you look at little kids playing soccer and they're all just crowding the ball like an amoeba running around the field. That's what you get when you watch the snakes or the Water Dogs. They crowd. They jump all over it. The Chrome, too. Great job of all three of them diving in on the play. The Archers like to have one guy kind of run, run in, like an Alexander would run in and try to do that. But Scott Ratliff would kind of sit back on the outside of it, and if the ball squirted loose, he would take it for a fast break. And he actually had a couple great scoring opportunities and stuck one himself off of a ground ball wing play. However – that's not going to get it done a lot of the times against these teams with a shorter field because now you basically have a three-on-two or three-on-one ground ball. So the first-time chance at a ground ball isn't going to be there and if you're hedging your bet that it's going to squirt loose somewhere. So that's just something they're going to want to look at. I think, I think the archers are okay with, with this double team. I think uh, Fowler, if he can work on his footwork as far as from a defensive standpoint, uh, a Fowler won a lot of clamps, especially against the whip snakes. But he would be flat footed when he threw the ball through his legs rather than kind of going to where he wanted to go and anticipate where the ball is going to bounce. Uh, and Bones Kelly, if he works on his counter ability, which he can be a nightmare, Bones could be an elite nightmare on faceoffs counter wise uh, if he would dedicate a couple extra steps to it. I think they're okay here. But with the influx of faceoff talent coming out of the college game, who knows what's going to happen? All right, so let's look at the Atlas. Trevor Baptiste was Trevor Baptiste for the most part. He had a couple games that raised some eyebrows and we'll look at that. So for instance, he was, he was about 20% against Joe Nardell and the Whipsnakes historically career wise Trevor's in the high 60% against Joe Nardell. And this summer it was a, it wasn't even close. And when we look at the clamp percentage, Trevor had a very high clamp percentage. In fact, Trevor had the highest clamp percentage of any player in the entire uh in the entire event. And when you look at a 50 what does he have 58 or he has 71 so 53.8% faceoff percentage for Trevor. He was 71% on clamps. That is a huge difference. It's almost 20% difference. Why was he so much higher on clamp percentage than everybody else because he's Trevor. And as he was getting used to the cadences, he started to adapt very well to toward, it, especially towards the end of the series. But he's another guy who likes to wait for the whistle and go. And he wasn't able to do that. And he was definitely thrown off by it against the Snakes for sure. However, the biggest thing that we saw and the biggest thing I think Trevor's starting to realize is as insanely talented as he is. And, and Trevor is one of the most talented human beings I've ever met, I've ever witnessed, I've ever played with or against. I think he's starting to realize now that even he is going to have to be a little bit more uh, of a Sergeant or general out there at the face-offs and telling his wings where to be exactly what they need to do. I think in the PLL, he's gotten away with letting his wings kind of do their own thing and come up with their own ideas. But I think he's starting to realize he's going to have to lead this unit. Now guys cannot just go rogue. You have to know where your pieces are at all times. And he's also learned that, Yes, he is a big time power clamper. He will drive on top of the ball and he will rotate. But when you freeze, guys are going to counter you. You're going to get the Joe Nardellas. You're going to get the, you know, Peyton Smiths, the Stephen Kellys, the Brendan Fowlers, Jake Withers. These guys are not concerned with winning the clamp. If they don't get the clamp, they're going to immediately lift. And if you freeze down there, You're either going to lock the wings off or they're going to double you and they're going to make it really hard. And it showed when you would double team Trevor and you would drive a man to his backside that he wasn't quite sure where his wings were at times. And that's not as much a knock on him or anything. It's just there has to be more continuity. And that's something that he's going to certainly want to take a look at on film during the offseason and have a, a, a discussion with the coaching staff of the Atlas and say, look, we all need to be on the same page here. Uh, There has to be a a definitive game plan. And I I think also something he's going to work, want to work on is speed boy. (laughs) He's proven that when he gets into the ball and he gets out of there, he is a force of nature. However, when he clamps and he drops his helmet down and he tries to rotate, guys are going to start to really take advantage of that. Especially if you're not sure where your wings are, they're going to counter and rip. And I think he, falls into this category of, you know, a LeBron James who is gets, you know, deals with harder fouls. Maybe like a, you know, you go back to the hack shack days where people would hang all over Shaquille O'Neal. They would d- basically do whatever they wanted to him really. And it wouldn't get called because he's a bigger guy. And I think Trevor deals with that a little bit where guys are allowed to rip his arm a little bit. Guys are allowed to, to I mean, he got flat out blasted and cross-checked from behind a few times with no calls. These are, Things that you when you're a bigger top dog, you have to deal with, and um, he's going to have to adapt to that for sure. I think he's still, until proven otherwise, throughout an entire season, in my opinion, still the best faceoff man on earth. But he's going to he's he's learning that he's going to have to adapt and continue to evolve if he wants to continue to be the the best. I don't think the Atlas really need a backup plan. I think bringing in a a, a young guy that they can get as a signed. You know, post draft day guy, free agent, uh, bring him into camp or something is fine. I think Jeremy Thompson is not going to be a PLL faceoff guy. I know he's there if if needed, and he was very valiant about that. But you know, you're asking a guy who has it, who's a very, very good faceoff man in the international stage, uh, to completely change his style for these rules because international styles do not work in the PLL because it's just so different so i don't know if it's fair to keep asking him to come in and, and take three or four faceoffs a game uh, when it's obvious that he's not comfortable doing it now when we move up the ladder here and we continue to look at these different teams the next up is the water dogs who performed about exactly where i thought they would i i really thought and i you know go back to our water dogs episode I was very clear that people were not giving enough credit to how big of a deal Jake Withers coming to this league was. And Jake Withers was as advertised. He was what we would call the counter king. I mean, when you look at his statistics, it is nuts. Try to wrap your head around this for a second, okay? Jake Withers, face-off, percentage, face-off percentage-wise, okay, he was third in the entire series at 57.6%. Now, last year, that would have been about second in the league. He was awesome. Do you want to guess how many clamps he won? He won five clamps the entire series. Five! He took 59 faceoffs. His clamp percentage was 8.5%, and he was a 57.6% face-off guy. That is almost a 50% difference. That's preposterous. Those numbers are correct, by the way. Okay? Now, what makes that happen? Well, when you look at how many wins he had, so we say he had 59 face-off wins. Okay. He had 21 face-off wins after not getting the clamp. Okay. And he only had five clamps. He won four out of those five. So when he won a clamp, it was all his. Now, how, how did he do that? Well, He was the most dynamic face-off guy in this entire tournament. And what I mean by dynamic is style, varying his stances, varying his technique, varying his moves. He was, I mean, he worked really well with his wing play, as we expected. And what he would do is he would stand up, he would rake you. He would pull you to the right if your technique, if you sat back on your clamp or you weren't fast to clamp and get up, then he would immediately lift right underneath your right glove and he would cause a a loose ball, and he is a dominating loose ball champ. He's awesome at it. He crushes it indoor. He's used to indoor loose balls. He's used to quick, fast-paced, in-tight face-offs and ground ball play, and he showed that he is definitely going to be a guy who's going to stick around the PLL. I mean, these rules are made for him, built for him. He was awesome. Imagine if his clamp percentage was like 12%. We're talking a 65% face-off guy. So – that was awesome to watch. He used his wings really well and not use his wings. When people say, Oh, he used his wings. He's popping the ball out to them or his wings are picking up ground balls. No, there are plenty of ways to use your wings. You can use them to drive people off of space so that you can then go clearly pick up a ground ball. You can use them as a switch where their one goal is to sprint in on your face off guy. And then you bail on the clamp and take the wing. So there's all kinds of ways to use your wings. He did a really good job. They were on the same page, almost the entire tournament. Uh, and then The biggest thing that I think he affected was not just his own play, but he helped elevate Drew Simino back to who we know Drew Simino to be. Drew Simino's clamp percentage was 57%. You know, that's, you know, he's in the top four or five in the league that way, 54.7% on faceoff wins. So he was fourth in the series in that. He was back to his old stealth quick punch into the ball, rotate hard. Uh, 78% of the time when he won the clamp, he won the face-off. And I think we made, we made we were making jokes about it, but it's something that I think he's going to seriously want to look at. He was on his face a lot. Uh, I think that Drew easily could have been in the 60 percentile face-off-wise. It's just he seemed to be popping the ball out and losing his edge. He would slide on the, on the grass. He would scoop the ball up and take two steps and then slip and fall. Um, a lot of times, at first, I just thought maybe he was trying to draw push calls because he looked like he was almost going horizontal in the air and falling. But then, uh, you know, as I kept watching, he was just slipping a lot. So I don't know what was going on with his cleats or maybe, you know, is the way he was getting taped. Who knows? But if he can keep on his feet next year, you know, we're talking about an all-star faceoff man. And that's where he belongs. I believe Drew Simino is an all-star caliber faceoff man. He's proven it in the past. So when you look at Jake Withers and Drew Simino, I firmly believe that the Water Dogs need to keep both of these guys dressed because they are at their best when they're both out there. You have Jake Withers is going to counter you. He's going to rip. He's going to stand up. He's going to fight for loose balls. He's going to stay on the field, play the two-man game with Courier, annoy you, then sprint off the field and tire you out. Then Drew Simino comes out. Drew Simino is then able to drive into the ball, rotate, and pop it forward on you. And I'm really kind of devastated I didn't get to see a Water Dogs with Sneaks matchup because, you know, as we're going to get to with Joe, Joe Nardella is really good at countering. But there's nobody who's ever done a 50% gap like that like Jake Withers. So you have a guy who has no weakness on being countered because he is the counter guy. And then you can throw in the guy who actually plays the ball exactly the way you'd want to against, uh, against Joe Nardella, which is to clamp rotate and get out of there, not sit there and wait and spin around while you get countered. We would have had an awesome, awesome game, man. I I hope that's like the first game of next season, that matchup, because those two wing units also were one and two and they didn't get to go against each other, which is kind of a bummer. Um, speaking of which, if we look at the actual water dogs breakdown, they were third in the league in face-off percentage at 56.3 and their clamp percentage was dead last at 31%. Obviously that was because of Jake Withers. But when you look at the wing ground balls, they were 26 wing wing ground balls, uh, and fit 5.2 wing ground balls per game. And they were second in the league in that guess who was first. No, it wasn't the whip snakes. It was actually the Chrome at 5.4 ground balls per game. The whip snakes were third. They had 4.8 wing ground balls a game. So when you look at that, you're like, whoa, okay, you know this is this is a team that really crushes wing play and has a full cohesive unit and you're doing it with two guys right. We talked about the Redwoods. They had issues because their two guys were very different in their approach to the game, very different in their the way they wanted to logistically map it out during a game. But it looked like the Water Dogs were all on the same page. And, and that's pretty awesome. You, you combine that with the fact that as an entire team, they only had two violations the entire series. That's nuts. So you had two faceoff guys that took 112 faceoffs and they only violated twice. That's amazing. So, yeah, the Water Dogs have exactly what they need. They need those two guys back dressed next year. And and there's just I, I I really believe that as long as they keep those two together, they keep Semino and Withers on the same team, those two will continue to dominate uh, together for sure. Now we go up the board. Now we're talking about the Chrome, second in the faceoffs uh, percentage on wins, fifty six point seven percent throughout the tournament. Connor Farrell took the majority of those. I thought Connor looked awesome. I thought Connor was faster, lighter. In the first game against the chaos, he was absolutely dominant. And he didn't just win clamps. In the past, when Connor wins a clamp, you're like, yes, Connor, clamp, turn, defensive exit, pops it out to himself, and that's usually a face-off win. But his face-off percentage was actually higher than his clamp percentage. So in the first game against the chaos, Tommy Kelly won a whole bunch of face-off clamps on the whistle in the second half. Like I I swear at some point he won like seven in a row. But he lost every one of those faceoffs because Connor got to his feet quickly, made it a one on one, shoved him to the ground, scooped it back up, and won that faceoff. And the chrome wings, when Connor didn't scoop it up, he played man ball. And, you know, the, these, these guys were flying off the wings. I was shocked. I was honestly completely shocked at how well the faceoffs went um, for the chrome on wing play because I really believe that the loss of Joel White was going to be devastating. But I'll tell you right now, if we don't talk more about Reese Eddy this offseason, I'm going to lose my mind. Reese Eddy and Will Haas were awesome. They were absolutely awesome. And Reese Eddy came in, didn't get nearly the amount of notoriety that I believe he he should have gotten. We need to hear more about his story this offseason. He was awesome. Reese Eddy is a phenomenal wing player. And if they get Joel White back next season and they have both of those guys, look out. I don't know who's winning a face off against those guys. I was shocked. I was really really impressed. I thought Connor was awesome. He did have a he had a couple tough games uh, you know throughout that that whole series but for the most part he was a, a super dominant and I think that's exactly what we expected out of him. His only real real tough game was when he had to line up against the Water Dogs. And that's exactly the type of of, of matchup that I would expect to be tough for him. Because Jake Withers loves countering guys. He doesn't care about the clamp. Drew came in there as a change of pace and was rotating hard. And and it's tough. It's really tough to deal with that. So when you look at that, you know, other than that, Connor was very dominant. And and, and I think he also benefited from the fact that both him and Trevor's statistics benefited from not having to go against each other. Um, So, you know, they, I I think I was just really impressed. I think Connor Farrell is going to continue to rise. And I talked about this in the preseason when we interviewed him. Connor is still raw he's still understanding this position and to to be second in the entire league against the best face-off guys in the world at 62 percent in your second season and you're still relatively raw watch out watch out for what he's going to continue to bring I think Hunter Forbes he showed that he has the hand speed for this and let's be honest he only got 18 faceoffs the entire time and when he would come in it's usually if Connor Farrell violated or if you know Connor's having a tough day and Hunter Forbes showed he had the hand speed, but and this is this is what I've said in the past. I hope Hunter heeds this advice because if he does, I think he can stick in this league. Is he needs to stand up when he's going neutral grip, and I think he learned how hard it is to go on a knee, pop the ball out loose, and then try to stand up in a ten a field ten yards shorter with wings that are closer. Uh, and, and there's a lot of ground balls. I know Hunter's probably kicking himself, going, man, I popped the ball out. I won the clamp. Um, but I just couldn't get the ball out and scoop it. And the reality of it is, is you're just not going to be able to pull it off. It also hurt his ability to counter. Uh, Hunter's a smaller guy. He's going to need his speed, and he's going to need every, every ounce of weight that his body weight can give you when it's time for battling 50-50 ground balls against guys like Connor Farrell, who's like 230, um, you know, Trevor Baptiste, who's 230, uh, those are big dudes, so you're going to need all of that. And if you're not already standing up after you lose the clamp and you want to counter, you're you're going to be dead in the water. And I think if Hunter can stand up and use his neutral grip ability, I think Hunter can stick around. I really do. Um, so we'll see. We'll see how that goes. He was a good uh, pace changer for Connor Farrell. Uh, however, if he stood up, I think he would have fared a lot better, and I think he can fare a lot better. All right. The whip snakes. Joe Nardella was the story. Joe Nardella was. If I had an MVP vote, would have been my series MVP. I think for obvious reasons. When you look at the fact that he was more than ten percent better than everybody else in the league, he won almost three quarters of his entire faceoffs throughout the whole series. He was seventy-two point five percent. His clamp percentage was fifty-eight point three percent. That's you know second best. Our third best, actually fourth best. It was fourth best in the entire league. Okay, and we've talked about it in the past. We talked about it in the preseason. Joe was like, "Man, I got to get that clamp percentage up because you're talking about a guy who was in the thirty percent clamp percentage uh, rate last year, and during the entire season, he finished, uh, you know, in the mid fifties. So that's a big deficit. And this year, it's almost the same deficit, almost a twenty percent deficit again." Uh, but his clamp percentage was up at 58. 58, that's, that's a, almost a 25% jump that he made this season. That's a massive jump. Why was that? Well, a couple different things. One, I think, like I said, he adapted by far the best to the officiating. He, he looked at it exactly the way I would have looked at it. Look, and I see your hand come down there, if you guys are just tapping the sticks and doing this crazy BS, fine. I'm going when I see your hand. And we saw more clean pop, pinch and pop faceoff wins than we've ever seen Joe give us, and it was because he was dead on and he was going. And yes, he got called for ten early's. Half of those, believe it or not, were in the playoffs, um, and he was he was fine with it. I would have been fine with it if I'm going to give up. If I'm going to give up two wins, if you're, I'm going to I'm going to eat two losses on faceoff uh, violations per game, but I'm going to go seventy five percent. I'm doing it. There's no reason not to. I'm not going to sit there and watch you beat me forward, and that's exactly the way Joe went after it, and kudos to him. But what remained steadfast was you got a guy who just jumped up 25% on his clamp percentage, and now anytime he does lose a faceoff, he's going belly to helmet, he's getting to his feet, he actually was using his butt end, which was throwing guys off, to lift their stick. Yes, it's totally legal. You can use whichever end of your stick you want. Everyone gets up in arms when they see Trevor Baptiste, throw a check on somebody's stick with the butt end of his stick. Yeah, that's totally legal. There's nothing in the rule book that says you have to check with the head side of your stick. Okay? So if he can do that, then Joe Nardella can 100% lift with the butt end. But guys just weren't scouting for it. And what was happening was people realized when you clamp and you hold the ball. Now, look, another thing that the refs totally screwed up was you're not supposed to be able to clamp and rotate. You're supposed to clamp and you get one step to redirect the ball. Okay, In the rule book, you get one clamp, and after they deem that you have won the clamp, you get one move, which is defined as one step to exit the ball. It's exactly the way it's written verbatim. They were letting guys rotate four, five, six steps. If you're going to let guys do that, then you better let Joe Nardella rip them apart. Okay, So the face-off guys were getting eaten alive because the officials were not blowing it dead when they should have, and Joe was taking full, just, I mean, he was killing it. Lifting the stick, then he would box you out. And then after he boxed you out, within two seconds, the entire whip snakes face off unit, all three of them, hawking the ball at all times. No one sat on the outside to see if the ball squirted loose. Nobody kind of sat back two steps just in case the ball, you know, goes loose and you get it on defense. No, all three guys wanted that faceoff win just as badly as the faceoff guy. When you watch a loose ground ball off a of face-off, you can always tell which guy is the faceoff guy. Because he's the one who is killing himself for the ground ball. Because the only thing we have statistically to show our worth as face-off guys is face-off win percentage. So you see us dive on our faces, kill ourselves, do everything we can, claw for the ball. Because that face-off, that ground ball symbolizes a face-off win for us. We need it to show our worth. A lot of times the wings don't approach it that way. That's just part of the game for them. So they don't care if the faceoff guy goes ten for thirty or if he goes twenty for thirty, as long as we don't give up a goal and we eventually get the ball back. The whip snakes do not look at it that way. You can tell Michael Earhart, Warner, they want that ground ball so badly for their faceoff guy and for their unit. It's a it's a crazy point of pride. How much of a point of pride is it? Michael Earhart led the entire league and win ground balls with twelve. And they played less games because they had the bye. Remember that. Ty Warner was third in the league with 10. So the two starting wing guys that you use the most, only two guys had 22 wing ground balls in the entire tournament. And they played one less game than everybody else. That's crazy. That's nuts. Okay. And, And that's just like something we have to understand is when you have all three guys that have the single purpose, they all want it the exact same. They all want to make sure that they have a point of pride where they can look at everybody and say, our unit is the best. And our face-off guys' statistics are high because as a unit, we are looking at it as a point of pride. It showed. Go back and watch the film. They wanted every ground ball way more than any other team that they played, for sure. And and that's just the way it goes. So when you look at the – I mean, now you have a face-off man who's winning 58% of his clamps. And then on top of that, he's countering and he's going to win back two-thirds. Two-thirds of his face-offs that he lost, clamp-wise, they won anyway. That is insane. You can't overcome that. So when you look at the NCAA saying, yeah, we don't want guys winning 75% of their face-offs, I don't think you're going to see that again. If the officials straighten things out, you're going to see things move back more towards the 2019 statistics where everyone was kind of in that 52% ballpark. However, Joe Nardella and his wings showed a precedent. We're gonna win more clamps than you, yeah. But if we don't win the clamp, we are gonna make your life miserable. Now remember something here. This is what really made it impressive for me to watch Joe. He was the only face-off guy on that team. And why is that a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because when you're the only guy, you're not, usually at some point, some percentage in your brain, is on energy control. I got. I can't totally kill myself on every face-off because I have to kind of pull back on ones that I know I'm not going to win. I have to sit back a little bit and let myself get beat because I need to keep my energy for my team. Now, when you look at them as a team, yeah. I mean, they had, they had Joe who took the majority of them. They had Joe McCallion who they were really high on and they said, you know, he's been working with Jonah Joe McCallion not a faceoff man in professional lacrosse. Okay, and, and and like I said about Jeremy Thompson, he he went out there, he fulfilled his role, he went out there and did his duty, he did what he was asked to do, but Joe was getting absolutely smoked on faceoffs, smoked. And you know that's just what he, that's he's not a, a he he stood up, he tried to rake, and look, granted he didn't take many faceoffs, uh, so it's hard to get into a rhythm, but. You can tell it. He's just not. He's not going to be a PLL caliber faceoff man. So, and and why I say that is because Joe Nardello went out there and took every faceoff, and he did it with reckless abandon. He was in shape. He was ready. He didn't sit there and, and go on energy saver mode. He dove on the ground. And this is something that I have heard rumblings about. And this it might be something that the league looks at. Joe does what we call camping. The ball's loose, and both whip snakes defender or uh, wing players are crashing the ball. Joe would dive on top of the ball on his knees and it's legal because you're not pinning the ball to the ground. The ball would be in between his legs on the grass. No one can really get to it. And by rule, you're not allowed to hit him because he's a defensive player on his knees. So you've kind of nullified the physicality of it. You've taken man ball out of the situation. He would then use one hand out to make sure that he was guarding himself from people trying to throw checks on the ball. And with the other free hand, he would scoop the ball, pull it in tight to his chest, not chesting. He wasn't doing illegal, but pull it in tight to his body and then stand up and roll away. And he would do it four or five, six times a game. And that's really tough to defend against. It's a great technique. It's well within the rules. However, we have talked about, I know the NCAA has talked about, you know, using guys dropping to the ground to their knees in the middle of a play as almost a kickball in basketball. Because you're basically giving your body up. You're saying I'm a defensive player. So no one's actually actively allowed to engage with you. And what you're going to end up getting is Joe getting absolutely just pumped with slashes to his midsection or his lower body. Uh, So that's something they're going to want to look at. But when you look at Joe's ability to hunt down those ground balls, sell out for every single one, counter you so that you can't win and hold the ball for a split second, and now he's also winning over 50% of his clamps, that equals you never seeing the ball in a game. And and kudos to him, kudos to the wing players of the Whip Snakes, kudos to Coach Stagnita for having trust in one guy throughout the entire thing. I think it was played perfectly. And that's how you got a Whip Snakes team that was basically unbeatable because you combined it with Burlor, who literally was an iron door and would not let the ball in, especially in big moments. I think you could argue Blaze Reardon's the only one who had a better overall series than him. However, Burnlore was the better man in the championship game, and it should. So when we review this whole series, and I keep saying series, I don't want to I don't want to call this a season because these guys didn't play 14, 15 games, right? They played five, six, or seven. Um, but we got enough of a taste to see exactly what the trends were. So when you look at the awards, okay, when when we look at our the stripe end-of-year awards here, and we look at who really deserves uh, some recognition? I think it's obvious that faceoff percentage-wise, Joe Nardella was the the king of faceoff percentage. He won seventy two point five percent of that. He dominated in every possible statistic. When you talk about uh, the intangibles of countering, of a three on two, three on one approach on faceoff wings, on dri- diving down on ground balls, on getting the ball out quickly, adapting to the officiating. He, he was all over it, and he deserves all the recognition in the world for that. So kudos to him. When we look at the Clamp King, Trevor Baptiste was 71% on his clamps. Uh, he came on strong in the second half. I think after that game against the Whip Snakes, he really said, okay, forget this. I'm not waiting on the whistle anymore. And he started to adapt similar to how Joe was, and he did a much better job. He was at 71% on his clamps, so good for him. When we look at the ground ball vacuum, Joe Nardella had 59 ground balls. OK, now remember, 59 ground balls in the tournament and they played one less game than everybody else. OK, and why is that important to remember? Well, because the second most ground balls was by Connor Farrell, who played one, uh, who had played the exact same amount of games as Joe. Thirty three ground balls. So a 26 <laughs> ground ball difference between the second most guy. Third place. Tommy Kelly had 22. So, Tommy Kelly, who played more games than Joe Nardella, had 22 own ground balls. He took almost 20 more faceoffs. And his faceoff own ground balls were less than the discrepancy between Joe and second place Conor Farrell. That's nuts. So, that's how you get an elite level faceoff guy right there. Counter expert. I think it's very safe to say that Jake Withers was the counter expert in this entire series. He had a fifty-seven point six percent overall uh, faceoff percentage. However, he was al- he was at a forty-nine percent difference between his faceoff win percentage and his clamp percentage at eight point five. He proved that in his first year of PLL experience, he had no problem adapting to his opponents standing up and going rakes when he need to, lifting, pinching, going with his clamps and rotations, using his wing play as cohesive as we talked about in that Water Dogs episode if you want to go back and listen to it. Uh, you know, Drew and Jake and myself, we almost sound like prophets at that point because it, it materialized exactly the way we thought it would. So, you know, big ups to Jake Withers proving his excellence as a potential all-star in 2021. We have a distributor award and that is the win percentage coming from your wings. Peyton Smith actually was at 52.4% of his face-off wins were from wing play. That means that when he would battle out there, he would get the ball out to his wings to different spots. He was distributing the ball all over the place. He would counter and create space for his wings to run on the ground balls. So like we said, the Redwoods' wing play got way better as the series went on. And they started to figure it out a little bit, get used to each other. And uh, I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that the wings were getting more comfortable, and Peyton Smith showing that you don't have to pop the ball to yourself to win faceoffs. So, fifty-two point four percent of his faceoff wins came from wings. Best wing unit. Yes, we talk a lot about the whip snakes, but let's have let's let the Chrome have their day here. The Chrome they had the most ground balls per game at five point four wing ground balls per game. Like I said, Rizzetti. Let's talk more about him. I want to hear more about his story, what his plan is for next year. I'd love to get him on the on the stripe at some point, actually, uh, to dis- discuss what he has going on, because I think he is a future star in this league. And, uh, you know, Reese really showed that he can, he can do this. He could not only fill in for Joel White, but he can be an all-star caliber LSM, especially off the wings during this whole thing. I think what we would like to do moving forward as we go on with the stripe in this offseason, we want to hear from you guys. What do you want more from us? Do you want to hear more about PLL? Do you want us to go and dip our toe a little bit more into the college game? Do you want us to discuss rule changes? Do you want us to discuss, you know, what can we talk about during this offseason for you guys? Because this, the stripe is about the faceoff community and bring the faceoff to the masses so you guys understand it at a higher level. I want to thank you guys for hanging with us during this championship series. So far, the five-star comments and, re- and, and ratings have been unbelievable and touching, to be honest. During the entire championship series, I was live tweeting and engaging with thousands of you guys during the games, and I got to tell you, I-, I was really taken back by the warm welcome. I, I really thank you guys. I-, I admit that as a 14-year professional lacrosse veteran – the transition to being an analyst, the transition to having to watch the game that I love be played by other people was one of the hardest things that I've ever had to experience, to be honest. And it was harder than I thought it would, but it was made way easier by the Premier Lacrosse League and the producers of this team helping me, allowing me to do my passion uh, and deliver my knowledge to you guys through this. And it's made my transition a lot easier. And I I really am grateful to the league. I'm grateful to the producers. I'm grateful to the stat people. I'm grateful to the guys who are listening and subscribing. Thank you so much. Please keep subscribing. The more subscribers we have on this podcast, the more we can dive in and get really wide with the, the scope of the things that we can cover. And please, you know, support us. There's merchandise in the Premier League shop for the Stripe. Anybody who ever uh, buys a a Stripe t-shirt, feel free to DM me or hit me up. I am happy to sign it and send it back. This community is for everyone. So I want to see you guys soon. We're going to be looking at our offseason schedule. Shoot us a tweet at the Stripe and let us know what you guys think and what you'd like to see. And I want to thank you guys one more time for listening. And I'll see you next time at the Stripe.